Welcome to Good Business. Today, I'll be speaking with Erin Simmon, Director of Sustainability and R&D for the World Wildlife Fund. From Hewlett Packard to World Wildlife Fund, how did it happen? Uh, yeah, that was really random, actually. So in my 10 years at Hewlett Packard, I was in Boise for five, and then I ended up back in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and when I was working in Richmond, my team was actually like my leadership was in San Diego. And um, so when we started a relationship with World Wildlife Fund to become members of the Global Forest and Trade Network, um, they, we had travel restrictions. And so they, I, since I was in Richmond, they said, you can drive up and down to D.C. and meet with the team and help us to get the certification set up and um, with FSC and all, and all of that. And so I was the one in going to D.C. and meeting with the, um, the pandas there at WWF oh, wow. and got to yeah, we refer to ourselves as pandas. Um, and they, they were great. We had a lot of good discussions, but because my background was broader than just pulp and paper, which is what is the focus of the Global Forest and Trade Network, uh, you know, we, we got into discussions around materials and material science, and they were quite fascinated because they were getting a lot of questions at the time from companies about support on sustainable packaging. And so um, I got introduced to to their um, SVP of markets at the time, Jason Clay. And he was like, I'd love for you to come and lead a platform for companies with how we engage with companies on material and packaging. I was like, okay. And so I, I mean, it was a very fast process. And one day I interviewed with this entire senior management team, got the offer. Um, I, it, it took me a while to actually start because I was, um, I think at that point, five or six months pregnant. Um, so wow. I had to go ahead and, um, have a child and then um, then I joined them. So yeah, it was it was I did not it wasn't something that I was seeking. I was I think ready for a change at that time and had been working in in the environmental space at Hewlett Packard. Um, but I saw this as a chance to sort of um, have more diversity in the work I was doing and have a mission that was really about how do I how do I empower companies to be able to across the board across sectors to be able to make really thoughtful decisions that can enable our mission to move forward, ours being WWS. And so it was a really, um, it was a really interesting change because I had never worked in, um, as an NGO. I'd always been at, at Hewlett Packard and before that, you know, other private sector organizations. So yep. it was, I mean, it was an interesting move. The market must've changed dramatically then in the last, you know, is it eight years since you've been at the World Wildlife Fund? Was, mm-hmm. was at Hewlett Packard, were you even thinking of the environmental impact back then? You know, you I, when you're thinking about, so I, I got my degree in packaging, and when you think about it, you it, it is like and the environment is really embedded in it. However, the way we've been thinking about it has changed, right? We we would think about the fact that materials had to be recyclable. You would think about optimal material design, and that was a big part of design in packaging is that you don't want to use too much and you don't want to use too little because the environmental impact on both sides is pretty big, right? If you use too much, you have a larger footprint for the packaging than you need to. And if you use too little, you're likely going to fail. The packaging mm-hmm. is going to fail because it's one job is to protect the product, right? And in most cases, the packaging is, you know, is less than 10% of the actual life cycle footprint of the product. Now I'm going to say that with a caveat because Today, and what has been leading to a sort of the proliferation of use of materials is that life cycle data today doesn't really account for proliferation of materials in the environment. Mm -hmm. So we know that from an environmental perspective, energy, water, material use, like plastics, for example, are extremely efficient. 
and they have a, a really high environmental value in that perspective um, compared to other materials. But we don't do a great job accounting for any materials at the end of life. We just don't have good data for that. We don't know what it means, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that was so life cycle assessment, d- driving for optimal design. Like that was always a part of what you were thinking about and protection of the product, which is a huge value. So it was embedded in what we learned and then in what you applied. But there was never the enabling environment beyond the company or even in leadership of the companies to do the stuff that we're doing today. So the changes that have happened since, you know, just in my time at HP and since I've left um, in the way that companies integrate sustainability, the way they think about it and, and what they're willing to commit to has vastly changed. And I would say even more so in just the past few years around the plastics issue commitments that companies are making publicly today are not commitments I could have asked for them to have made a few years ago. They just wouldn't have been ready. And, and is it because of the grassroots movement of people demanding it? You know, it's a couple of things, really. I think, so in 2015, uh, the Jenna Jenbeck article came out, which said, why do we have marine debris? And it was, you know, it, you can argue how great the data is, but what it really did was it pivoted a conversation around, you know, let's use less, let's make it recyclable and use recycled content, full stop, to the system's broken. We have areas in the world that have no waste management. We have inefficient waste management everywhere else, really. And so we have been focusing just on this one piece of the puzzle. And if we don't fix the entire system, it doesn't really matter what we did upstream. Um, It only, you know, like, because it just, it was like it emptied into a void, the link in those chains, the links in those chains weren't mm-hmm. like closed. And so that was a pivotal moment because it brought, I think it brought a number of stakeholders together on the issue and said, okay, we need to solve for this problem differently, which was big, really big. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a big, that was a big turning point. And so you started to get like the movement and you started to get companies thinking about their role. You started to get investment in different places. You got governance, governments interested. And at the same time, there was this surge in social media that started to happen. You saw, you know, species that were being entangled. And let's be clear, that's been happening all along. That's not new. Like the number mm-hmm. of pictures I have with seals with packing bands wrapped around their necks. That, you know, that's been happening for decades. But now it was just the, the amount of these photos and how quickly social media picked up on the issue um, really pushed more of the momentum forward um, in combination with like the science sort of coming along and saying, okay, we have a better idea of how we're all going to engage. And it became this pre-competitive issue. It was really the perfect storm, right? Yeah. And so it sort of happened. And do you feel like it's happening fast enough and in the right way? Or could it be done differently and better? Do you feel like people are still holding it back or companies are still holding it back? Um, you know, I think that should it be? So I feel like very mixed about that. And here's why. So first of all, it's moving really fast, which is great. But we're definitely building the airplane while we fly it. Because the systems and infrastructure don't exist to do what we need to do. And by systems, I mean, we don't know material, like material flows, and everybody knowing where everything goes and where it's moving from and how to measure it and chain of custody doesn't exist. Like it could exist. We have the technology to do it, but it's not in place. So all of that stuff needs to go in place. Like basil just came through and plastics are a part of that. And that is going to be a great forcing function because now we need all of that like tracking to happen, right? Like Mm -hmm. all of that, all of the, the logistics of that need to happen. So that needs to get into place for us to get a better picture so we can make sure we're making the right choices. So while it needs, 
Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Ma'am. Sorry. Oh, no, I was what just going to say, say yeah, you almost want an open source tracking network, you know, someone to put a set up an open source RFID chips with a tracker, you know, a SIM card sent to everyone and they put it on different pieces of packaging everywhere around the world and you start following the flow. I mean, yeah, and there are some people who've talked about this idea of tagging stuff, although tagging is a disaster in MERPS because it is, it can cause fires and also mm. it's a different material and much different materials don't work. So we don't want to, so, but yeah, so there's these, there's all these different ideas about how open source would be great because there are people who have pockets of data in the mm-hmm. system and they want you to buy it, right? That's like the same thing. This idea that we, that that is still a competitive space is hard when we're trying to solve a global problem that's pre-competitive. So pushing past that has, you know, in some cases is difficult, but yeah, I think we aren't moving fast enough for the environment, right? We have gotten ourselves in quite the pickle where we have this material that brings great value to humanity. It really does from an environmental and a human health perspective, like plastics are really valuable, but we have not, we have not kept up with that from the rest of the system. And we are now proliferating waste. And so we have to check ourselves. We have to say, are, do we need to use it in all these applications? No, get rid of it. Yes. Make sure you can recover it. Right. Like those are the types of decisions that we need to do. Um, but that is, and, and how do you make sure that then you have the systems in place to do that? So we're not moving fast enough because the, like we, we don't have much time. Like we've already made a huge mess. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, um, we don't know, we don't have all of the information we need to always make the right choices. So we could be creating unintended consequences. I mean, that's how we got here. Mm. What we had, what information told us was that plastics were great. Right. And so we, and we use them to lightweight cars and to lightweight airplanes and the medical devices that we have because of plastic. I mean, I, I have a, I have a, I have a, you know, three-year-old nephew who has a stint in his heart that is plastic mm-hmm. that has saved his life. Like I, there are things like that that you're like, yes, but we never stopped and said, like, what are, what about the rest of the part of the system that we just aren't measuring right now? And so that I just want to make sure when we're making decisions to solve for this waste issue that we don't do it again, right? Like, yeah, because this is not the biggest issue facing oceans. The climate is, <laughs> climate yeah, yeah. change is, and we can make decisions that have climate change impact, and we could be kind of. You know, I don't know. So it's, it's hard. Al- it's almost like the conversation's changed recently from climate change to plastic waste, hasn't it? Totally. It's crazy. You know, <laughs> around ocean health, right? Like we work, like, and one of the things that is important at World Wildlife Fund is that we never lose touch with the rest of the world, right? You can't just focus on climate change or just plastics. You have to think about how all of that ties together because it's it's, it's one large global system. And so ocean health and and our oceans in general are so important to our lives and our, and, you know, and there are so many issues that are facing the oceans around warming, around overfishing and our coral reefs and our mangroves. And we have had the hardest time getting people to notice those issues because they are really important, but the plastics issue hit and everybody's like, Oh, our oceans are in trouble. And we're like, well, now you noticed. Well, and so, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. isn't it? If- yeah. So, if you had all the money in the world and you also own Fox or the media outlets like Rupert Murdoch, what would you do? I mean, I would, you know, like we need a material revolution, right? And so that comes with, like that comes with us all leaning in together and that like coordinating that in this really diverse global world when we can't agree on like anything is difficult. 
um, plastics actually have a great opportunity because everybody sort of agrees on one thing, that they don't belong in nature, right? Like they agree with that. And so you have a whole bunch of different strategies about whether you need to get rid of all of them, whether you need to keep them, whether you just need to solve for waste management. And so there is, and so, and, and in the end, you need all of those things. We need all of those things at once. And you also need us to consume less. And so, like, I wonder almost if um, there, if, you know, if you could, if there was some way for you to sort of, like, internationally, like, put some, like, very strong rules in place about how we, how we think about all things and not just plastic. They're the poster child. It has to, all of these things have to go from metals and glass and mm. paper because we have, they, those all have their own impacts. Um, and just sort of, you know, think about more strongly about, do we need these things? Like, are they essential to our lives? Like, and then, you know, and, and I know that that's about values and that the, the metrics for that for everybody are, you know, globally so different, mm. but like, what do we need to have? And then whatever it is, it needs to be sustainably sourced. They're not overtaxing the planet. And we need to make sure we cascade the value of it when we're done mm-hmm. with it. So whether that's my shirt or a computer or whether it's a plastic bottle, like I need to be accountable for helping to cascade it. And the system, like every person who touches it needs to be, right? So mm. that, You almost want a dictatorship lot. on packaging. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think not just packaging because it's not everything, but yes, like we need to be, we need to be better stewards. We are very good at like take buying something and being like, Oh, I need the next best Mm. or just consuming for convenience and getting used to that. And that's not just about like buying stuff. That's, um, I don't know about you, but like the, the more technology I have access to, the more accessible I am to everybody who needs me. And so you start to like really work all the time. And so you need to be able to, but you want to, do everything else in your life too. And so you need to be able to have the ability and convenience to do all these things on the go, to travel all over, take meetings while you're traveling, mm-hmm. eat while you're traveling, you know, exercise while you're like, you know, engage. And so all of those things require, you know, you to be able to have a bottle of water or some calories or some snacks, you know, and like all of that, like, and you know have the convenience with families with children like they need to go to all these 300 sports because we've mm-hmm. decided that their college you know like entry is going to happen starting in kindergarten when they choose their sport of choice it's like ridiculous the level we have raised the bar for all of us on living and so with that comes the need for that convenience to support that and so there's this whole like underlying I think um set of trends that are really going to play a role in how we consume moving forward and how we think about those things. So I just got really deep for you. I appreciate you. What would you do with the money in with the media? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even answer that. I was like, Oh God, the problem's big. <laughs> I think we all know the problem. Do you feel like, do you feel like things are on the edge that are going to, you know, do you feel like there's something on the edge or things happening on the edge that are just going to transform everything overnight, almost like the computers did with HP and Dell and Apple? Do you feel like this in different markets can be anything from coffee cups to whatever? Is there things that you feel are yeah. going to completely transform in the next five to 10 years? I do think so. I think, um, I think what's happening now is that you are having um, in big ways conversations around these key leverage points that are going to, and it's hard to predict right now what they're going to be, but what I can expect is you're going to see the reusable market um, boom. And that's going to be interesting because we need, we don't have infrastructure or regulation on all of that to make sure that's environmentally better. 
but there is a demand for it. We understand that that is an implication, and so we're asking the questions while at the same time trying to push that forward, so that's great. Um, you are seeing um, alignment around materials and recovery in a way that we, for the stuff that is going to be single use, how do you cascade the value, and you're seeing more collaboration oversight into those materials, which I think is going to lead to a couple of things. You're going to have more you're going to have more people adapting material use to those commonly recovered materials. We're going to have better data and access and efficiency on actually recovering in, in secondary markets and higher quality, so better use of those materials. And I think that those types of shifts around some common materials is going to happen quickly. Now, we have, there are so many different types of plastics and properties that they have, and that is one of the reasons why we have proliferated the different types, is because you can change them just slightly and they can have different barrier properties. And so, from that perspective, there is going to be, I think some people are going to push back on the like evolution away from their IP, but I think you'll see in the systems perspective, their materials will not work as well in those systems unless they develop a technology and manage it in the system, and that demand is going to be there. That accountability is going to be there, and it's already there, um, so that I think that that is going to happen quickly. Um, qu I would say five years, right? We're going to see, and we should markets. see... Um, definitely fast moving consumer goods first. Okay. That's where you're going to see the biggest stuff happen first. The ripple effect from that and all of this momentum is going to move into apparel and upholstery and carpeting very quickly because the, the microfiber issue is not the same source point as microplastics that you see in the ocean, right? Those microplastics come from macroplastics, the big stuff that gets mm -hmm. leaked and then breaks down. Microfibers are in the air because of the clothing we're wearing, the carpeting we're walked on, like the chairs, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I see that those industries are going to come quickly. I think another industry that's going to come along quickly is the electronics industry. E-waste has very similar like regulations around moving e-waste around and challenges around sourcing and all the materials that they're trying to use and a proliferation of consumption because electronics are the thing that like sometimes they age out after, you know, a year, right? Mm -hmm. Or we are told, like, we want the next we want the next thing, right? Um, so I think that those are going to be industries that follow quickly um, behind that. And then you'll start to see, you know, there are some that are going to, the, the medical packaging is going to be an interesting one. It's, a, it's necessary. That stuff is in a whole different stream itself. Mm -hmm. There are really unique performance challenges that nobody's going to put a lot of pressure on um, their, the cost of failure there is human lives and that's not something that people are willing to toy with so that's why you don't see like them being targeted as much for their waste mm. yeah 100 percent. yeah but someone you so do you feel like there's opportunities in the markets for companies to start up and innovate in these markets? yeah and where do you see the that, easiest opportunity you must see it more than anyone else you know and that's the crazy part and the one that i'm always like when i am having conversations with large companies you know that's the thing I don't always think that they realize they need to be afraid of because there are going to be situations where a product or a, a, you know, a whole product profile that exists today is not going to exist in the future. Mm -hmm. Like they're just going to not work. Yes. Right. And so anybody, that you think? well, you know, I think today metalized films are really, we use a ton of them in packaging. Um, and there's a reason for that, right? We have great, they have great barrier properties. You can do printing. They have good shelf life. Um, What's an example of those, metalized film, sorry? What? Oh, a chip bag, a candy oh, bar, okay. a granola okay. bar. Yeah, like foil packaging. 
Yeah. And those are, it, you, when you add, when you do a laminate like that, you get the properties of both those materials with less mm-hmm. material. And then, um, so it's like really lightweight and so you use less. Um, and you can, you really have pretty long ex- life shelf life, like, you know, a year, you yeah. could argue whether that that's necessary, but we have really long supply chains today too. But then, um, but uh, there is going to be, somebody is going to create a solution that replaces that. And do you feel like someone has already or it still has to be created? I mean, just today <laughs> I saw Nestle say that they have that they put out and I haven't looked into it because, so I don't know exactly how they're sealing it because you have to seal it with something and the plastic is how you used to seal it, but they have a paper wrapper for their um, granola bars. So, and that's just the thing. That's just one example. Like the fact there's, these things are harder to do. They're harder to run on our machinery. They're harder to like, they cost more. Mm -hmm. And so, um, sometimes that like, that can cause more resources. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you've got to figure that all out, but there is like so much opportunity to reinvent and leapfrog um, now than there ever has before. And companies are asking for those, those opportunities. So I would say like, there is the the big chance. I think that we just like, just with tech, right. Just as many startups that are going to be successful, there's going to be a lot that are not because Mm -hmm. I think the problem is, is you're always solving for a problem that you haven't well-defined yet sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's going to be interesting, but there's, I mean, there's a lot there. I think in the other piece that's going to be where we're going to see a ton of innovation is not in a, in a physical sense, but in a collaboration and contracts and management and, and, and information flows, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever jumps on um, like figuring out how to establish better contracts and better like incentives for waste management, if they could figure this out in the U S let me be clear, that would be huge. That is, that's a breakthrough. That doesn't exist today. That innovation needs to happen. Um, the collaborations between peer companies and competitors that like, there's some great examples of that with the next gen cup challenge where like Starbucks and McDonald's came together and said, all right, we need to solve for this together. The cup itself can't be the thing that we compete against. We need to do that together. Right? Like, so that type of innovation um, is going to be really huge. So you're seeing people who enable that to happen, that, that innovation um, are going to have a whole, there's a whole new space for that and a desire for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is, I, I just, yeah, like if you drag your feet right now, cause everybody's leaning forward and trying to figure out quickly how to do this. If you're dragging your feet, you're going to like miss the boat. As in institutions or as in entrepreneurs? Oh, institutions, yeah, yeah. entrepreneurs, like, yeah, like, I mean, they are a bit more agile, big so, companies yeah. and big waste management are like big ships. They take a lot to turn. The question they, I guess they probably ask is what's the, you know, what is the point? Like, so say Nestle, for example, decided not to change anything and it's now 20 years time. Do you think it's going to matter to Nestle? I think that that's like, I think that there is, I think that there's going to come a point that a couple things would be prohibitive for them to not change, right? First of all, regulation is changing super fast, sometimes way ahead of the actual, like ahead of the science and the information, which is dangerous because it's not always well thought out. Um, like when there's laws around marine degradability, which is not actually a thing. And mm-hmm. also we don't want things to break down in the ocean. We just don't want them to end up there. Um, but like, those are some of the, like, those are some, like the regulations are, are, are going to be a forcing function. The other piece is that consumers 
are super aware of this issue. And while they don't know how to solve for it completely, then they're starting with coffee cups and they're starting with carrier bags and, you know, you know, skipping the straw, mm-hmm. they're going to get more and more sophisticated. They're going to figure out ways to push on this further. And they're going to start like their buying power is going to change things. They're going to start demanding, you know, that there are alternative options. I'm not saying they're willing to spend more because all of that information says that no matter what, like consumers will not spend more on this, but they will, they will change. There will be some changing in their buying habits. I think it's going to happen slowly in some places, um, but faster in others. The U S will probably be behind in the end. The coast will be ahead, but the middle America will not be as quick to happen. It's interesting, isn't it? So Mm -hmm. in five years time, do you think people are still going to be drinking? You know, like when do you think people will stop drinking out of disposable plastic coffee cups? Do you think there will be a point where that changes? So cup, I think what's going to happen is it's no longer going to be a plastic coffee cup. I think it'll still be disposable because people love their coffee on the go. It's a religious experience for many. Um, so I think that that's one thing. I think you'll have higher costs to do that, right? You won't be opting out of, um, you won't be getting a discount for bringing your own. You'll be paying more to not bring your own. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff like that will happen. Um, and I think that the cups will not be, they won't have a plastic component to them. Um, but they will be pulp and paper and they'll still be like a single use. And so that still is problematic. I think what will be an interesting, more interesting change in the U.S. specifically is bottled water. Mm. Because, um, you know, there is, you know, bottled water became this like sort of fad and it was about like just having convenient water. But we have like in most places, minus maybe, um, you know, Flint, Michigan, like we have access to clean, fresh water. We can just fill our own bottle and so it's been interesting, really, like, I, I make small movements on that one. I have, you know, I have, like, parents who live in Michigan, and, like, they used to buy, like, 24 packs of, like, plastic bottles, like, yeah. plastic bottle water. I'm like, let me just get you a water bottle. Well, I, you know, it doesn't fit in my cup holder, or I don't want to travel with it. I don't know how to travel with it. I'm like, you travel with it empty, and then you fill it as you go. Like, just getting them to stop buying yeah. that took me, like, two years. <laughs> um. But yeah, so I think actually plastic, like water is going to be interesting because that ties in, you know, more issues than just like getting rid of like the single use element. But it also says, what is our right to fresh, clean, healthy water as humans globally? And that's going to be bigger. I've been talking about this for such a long time now. It must feel, it feels like 10, 10 plus years that people have been talking oh, about bring back the tap. But people still buy bottled water, right? And it doesn't matter if oh, they the care time. about the environment, they still buy it. In it's crazy. The thing is, is that it is super difficult. It is difficult. If you're in the middle of nowhere or something and it doesn't have water and you are super dehydrated, you have to make a choice, moral choice. You to choose. Eat or you do not. Yeah. You totally choose the bottle of water. If I'm in China, like. Or Mexico. I'm drinking like sealed. Yeah. You are, you know, you, I mean, I have actually like. I was in Puerto Rico right after the hurricane and I hadn't thought about it. And I was on a sailboat and I was, we got into late and I filled my water from the tap and drank it. And I paid the price for that, like royally. Yeah. From the the family and team you made. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It was, you know, so I like, but we, you know, so there's like, so that, you know, when talking about entrepreneurs, who's going to solve for the filtration system that exists today? Like what's the filtration system that goes and becomes a part of 
like the place where you have, you know, Coke has freestyle mach- machines, right? And what they are doing with their freestyle machines is they are in certain close communities, they are like freestyle machines are open, right? And you can, you bring your own thing and so you can get fresh water from it. Or if you want it to be bubbly water, or if you want it to be like any of their sodas, you use the RFID tab on the bottom of your bottle mm-hmm. that is associated with your credit card to buy it. It's a no, no, like it's a no like packaging yeah. delivery system. Right. And so, I mean, like there's going to, that type of solution um, being available to like other communities in a different way. Right. Like that freestyle works for college campuses and, but like, how would you put that in a, you know, in, in a village in Jakarta? Like, what would that look like? And do you, do you feel like compostable bottles or PLA bottles is the answer? Um, I would say compostability makes sense only for food service. So let me give you an example. If, so composting is a science. It's like a recipe to get it to break down when you put it into an anaerobic digester or, or an industrial composter. And so if you were to go to a concert and they handed out everybody with compostable cups and then they collected that and you were feeling all good about yourself and then a composter got a shipment of just cups, it literally can't compost those because you need to have it in combination with like food and bacteria and like all, like the greens and the browns need to come in there too. And so, um, and, and so it needs to be like food service, you know, like with mm-hmm. actual food on it or as a part of that, that's what it starts to make sense. Cause it's part of the food waste mm-hmm. that's getting composted. Um, the problem with compostable materials is they like people feel like they're going to go back to nature. So there was a, like, um, a keep America beautiful, um, survey done. It was pr- it's probably a decade ago now about like biodegradable materials. And they, um, so that people are more likely to litter them because they're like, I think mm-hmm. it breaks down. And that's, um, <laughs> that's like the opposite of what we want to happen. Right. Um, uh, I think anytime you're using a compostable material, it needs to be paired with infrastructure. So industrial composting, mm-hmm. so we can get something back from it. And that exists less in the world than recycling does. So just, just a lot to hang your hat on. The, it's not going to break down in the landfill. No, no, no. Staying on the track of bottled water, what do you think is going to be a solution for bottled water? Um, I think a couple of things. It's going to be like not one golden solution, right? I think in cases where I think there's going to be pushes away from the use of bottled water in places where it's not necessary. Um, So getting rid of it where we don't need it. I think in places that we do, there's going to be a push for better recyclability of PET. PET is a high value material. So making sure we get it back um, is probably the most, if you could have a recycled PET bottle in places where bottled water was necessary, I think that is, that's a very good from an environmental perspective right now. Mm-hmm. Replacing it with um, aluminum cans, um, if they are recycled aluminum cans in an area where we can recycle that aluminum, which we don't do great globally either, that's another possibility, but there's a higher cost from an environmental perspective with aluminum. Um, to recycle it. And then... Yeah, no, not to recycle it necessarily, just to make it in the first place. Also, mm. there's a ton of demand for recycled aluminum because it's not just used for used beverage cans. It's also used for airplanes and um, cars and, you know, a lot of things. So aluminum is so, it's just um, infinitely recyclable. So that material can go from a can to a car, back to a can to a, you know, a closure to an airplane. 
if you can aggregate it and collect it. And so in, in general, the aluminum recycling system is also needs a lot of work. So, um, I know, um, I noticed that the, uh, Pepsi or Coca-Cola's just released that they're going to move to aluminum, uh, aluminum cans, right? Rather than bottled water. Do you, in, like do you know which region? I know in Australia, they've definitely said it. So I think what they, like one of the things they're doing with their world of that waste is trying to figure out where, um, where they can, what, what delivery model, like, so um, that could be in a returnable glass. It could be in a returnable PET or it could be a recyclable PET or it could be mm-hmm. aluminum what's going to work best for actually getting it back. So if there's a place where like, for example, aluminum recycling is really established and working well, then moving into an aluminum can makes a ton of sense because they're contributing to an existing system. And that's what I was touching on earlier when you said, what's going to change. It's going to be things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So where a system exists to actually recycle something really efficiently, it makes it the better choice to move to that material. And they have the ability to switch back and forth from region to region. Yeah, the opportunities in place essentially require both, right? They require the sorting or they require three things. They require the packaging, the sorting and the uh, reuse or, you know, re-engineering of that packaging. Yeah, Yeah, the collection and processing and then the the last piece is the market for it, the Mm. demand for that material because that is what gives it value and when a material recycling facility or a MRF is making a decision about what to do with that bale of material. If they can get more money from landfill than they can get on the secondary market because they do or do not have demand, they will make the choice because they consider themselves a business too, right? And that's why mm-hmm. a lot of recycled material, recyclable materials in the U.S., for example, are collected but not always recycled. Similar. So it's kind of like copper. Copper is always collected. If you look on the streets of Hong Kong, everyone's got the metals from, you know, tiny pieces of metals, right, collecting. Do you feel if you could do the same with PET, it would start changing it? Yeah. I mean, if you look at, there's, there's, and that's why I say for PET in particular, um, there's a couple of plastics today that are like are really what we call high value plastics. I mean, those are the ones that even in the informal sectors in like Southeast Asia, the waste pickers pick up first because they get the most money for that. So for their time, it's, and so for PET, where the material is necessary, right? Again, starting with that as the first filter point, do you need it? Mm-hmm. Then you say, okay, yes, like how do we make sure it's recovered and that, and that there's a secondary market for it to be used again? The other thing about recycled PET is it, it has a diverse set of uses for it. Our pet can be used in clothing and carpeting, in upholstery um, and in bottles. And, you know, and in trays, it's got like all these different applications that you can use for it. So you have a lot of markets that you could sell that material into. Um, and depending on the regulations, whether or not it can be food grade or not. So that I think we're, I think, you know, enabling PET is going to be really great. Now there's multi-laminate plastics that are many plastics mm-hmm. together and those are not recyclable today. And so you're going to see those move towards homogeneous materials um, in order to do that. Um, in, in many cases, there's an environmental cost to doing that. I just want to highlight, but that you'll see that just from a recovery perspective. There's so many pieces to the puzzle. The I, I recently read um, Neville Wisdow's book, who you know, one of the CEO and chairman of Coca-Cola, and he's yep. South African and on our board. Yeah. Oh, is he? Is he on your board? Is he? Yeah. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, he he was. He's no longer anymore. Okay. Well, I was, I found it quite fascinating in his book about how they transitioned from the returnable bottles in South Africa to PET bottles. And the, yeah. 
and how quick that took. It took like two years for PET bottles essentially to grow exponentially with Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And you wonder yeah. if there's something else that will come out and do the same thing again. Or is it a returnable bottle system that comes out and can transform it that quickly? But it would actually require yeah. global infrastructure, right? Or infrastructure in each location. That I think it's going to be local. Yeah. I think it's going to be local. I think what you're going to see is that in some places it's going to move to a reusable. In some, yeah. And that's a reusable by the consumer. In some cases, it's going to be a refillable, and that's going to be where you have the infrastructure for cleaning and et cetera. In some cases, it's going to be aluminum because they have good recycling infrastructure. In some places, it's going to be the PET, and they're going to just really focus on getting recycled content or sustainably sourced bio into it. And so you're going to see that combination of solutions that match what's available in the infrastructure, what's happening in those countries or in those regions um, to make sure that the va- that, that there is a way for those products to the value to be cascaded over and over again. So um, those interventions are going to look differently and you're going to see that with like, um, you know, consumer goods too, right? So like mm-hmm. P&G is looking at that same type, like those same like sort of mix of solutions, both from a sourcing and um, recovery perspective where it makes sense in that region to make sure that whatever they're putting out, they can get back. And is it, is it going back to the story, does Nestle, does Nestle need to move that way in order to be successful in 10 to 20 years? Does it have to change its packaging? Mm-hmm. It does. Because yeah. consumers won't buy it otherwise? Or well, regulation, yes, both, right? It's going to be those things. It's going to be the combination of those that, um, that are, that are going to lead to the change, right? And just the fact that now we have asked them to be um, accountable. We've mm-hmm. asked them to, um, we've asked them to publicly say what they're going to do and then be able to report on that year over year. And so if they're going to do that, they need to, um, like they are going to have to change. They're going to have to rethink materials. They're going to have to rethink delivery models and business models. And they're going to have to like rethink innovation around waste management. You know, you see what P and G just did was they, um, you know, for diapers and feminine products, which are not recyclable today for very mm-hmm. good reasons. Mm-hmm. They have invent, and, you know, and they're not going to go away um, mm-hmm. because they're, you know, they're necessary. Um, good for them. So they haven't, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> they're going to be, they have invented a technology that recycles them. And so it could be like, you know, and, and gets materials out that has value and they can reuse again. That and it has, you know, and, and has use and, you know, that has a market for it. So that's, that is, they're solving a problem for something in the past, right? Thinking about how businesses have changed, you know, in the past, they could have said, it's a diaper. It's not my fault. It's not recyclable. Like people mm-hmm. are still buying them. Why would I have to do anything about it? It's not like, you know, everybody needs diapers. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's making babies, right? But mm-hmm. like, um, and so I think from that perspective, there now it's like, well, I create these. I'm accountable for finding out what to do with them when they're done. Because right now, there's no choice but to put it in the trash and in the landfill. So that's that's different, right? That's that. If you're trying to figure out how businesses have changed, that in itself is they've decided they're now accountable for the whole system, or partially accountable at least, and they can contribute to it. Or can charge more money because of it. The. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I, when I grew up, I didn't have, I had reusable nappies, right? Which my mother yeah. had like a towel that she 
clipped to me and that was yeah. <laughs> as a mother i um <laughs> well so i did a life cycle analysis of diapers before i should make the decision and because like of the water use and stuff like i was like well you're you're six one half dozen the other but also again coming back to convenience yeah so you don't that, even wash uh, your clothes you're just buying disposable clothes every day <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's different. Uh, I don't know if you know how many diapers children go through. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it's that. It's many. <laughs> it's like 12 to 15. <laughs> I did have a business idea that we could do, you know, uh, almost like a laundry service, like a hotel yeah. with it, but you'd have to be very, very keen. <laughs> yeah i mean it's like i have a i had a girlfriend who had triplets and she did reusable yeah and i was really impressed by her oh that's cool the um i don't have you heard of blue water blue water machines i have i like there's i was i feel like i have but i want to like my i'm not always great with names i have to like see visuals so, so tell so me the, um from, what it is from sweden and norway and oh, I don't know started by Joseph, who owned one of the largest air conditioning companies in Norway. And he sold that. Okay. And he bought the rights to this machine, uh, which has been around for years, an industrial machine that can take any water source and make it 100% clean. But he's made yeah. it now down to a household machine. Yeah. And the Volvo, they sponsor the Volvo Ocean Race every year, the sailing race. And they've hooked it up. They hooked it up to Pooh River in China, for example, and they recycle 100% of its water. Oh, cool. And so my vision has always been that you could hook one up to your dishwasher and just recycle the, uh, you know, dishwasher or your yeah. washing machine and it would recycle 100% of the water back in. What if that became like standard in building houses? Like, you know, and what if you like, I mean, that that's super exciting stuff. Like we take for granted that we have access to water as much as mm -hmm. we want. Like, mm -hmm. and so can you imagine if we were started, if we started to be charged for like that, or if we, if we were only allowed a certain amount, like you could imagine how quickly we'd be incentivized to change the way we think about it and be willing to invest in a system that recycled our gray water. Yeah. And maybe this movement towards subscription models and leasing and everything sort of helps businesses like those. I think, you know, I think in some cases it will, although that sounds like something pretty permanent, right? But although mm -hmm. like you, you could look at like your cable box, right? That's a leasing system mm -hmm. where, I mean, it could be something to that extent. But yeah, I feel like um, that, that type of technology, it exists, right? Like it just hasn't been made, like it also, we need to figure out how to make it really accessible and low cost for communities where, you know, they are, they're like the the number of socioeconomic issues that they are facing on top of environmental ones are just, mm -hmm. they're enormous. And so their decisions that they're making and their priorities like are very difficult. It's about like food on the table, you know, Who, roof overhead type of thing. Just changing the subject slightly. So you, you work with a bunch of different major companies, mm -hmm. advising them predominantly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a combination of things, you know, it's pushing them. A lot of them are, you know, they depend on me to keep them sort of like doing the next thing that they need to be doing. Um, it's advising. They will regularly be like, I heard about this, this new concept of something. What do you think? And I'll be like, I think it's a good idea or I think it's missing a lot of science or here's what I would recommend asking them or they, you know, or they're looking for us to help them to understand better the role they need to play in a larger issue. So mm -hmm. 
it's a combination of research and influence and just trying to make sure that we are staying ahead of what's important so that we can help those companies be the, the lever for change, right? And um, so and who, and who you, in your mind, who is the leader in the change? Is McDonald's and Starbucks actually going to make a big leap? I think um, in different issues, there's different organizations, right? I think that that was a leadership move by coming together and saying that the they were no longer going to say our cup is a competitive advantage. Our mm. branding is one thing, right? What you put in it is another. But the cup together is we want it so that a Murph sees a McDonald's cup versus a Starbucks cup versus a Coke cup, and it should all be the same cup so they can manage it because it's a mm-hmm. single stream, right? And that is that's, that's a decision point because for the longest time, like the packaging technologies and those materials were competitive. They would, they would compete, compete on the environmental value of those. And now they're starting to see that that does not behoove them. It does not change the system. It just, you know, it just proliferates these, you know, these claims that nobody understands anyways. So that's leadership. What's also leadership is the companies making big commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, like, the global commitment that Ellen MacArthur has been driving for is really big because, and I say that not because you can, you always agree with what's behind that and how it's going to work. Cause there's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than the simple goals that are set there, but it was a movement that said you, this is the minimum bar for mm-hmm. commitments now. And, and companies have no idea how to actually do that. That is, I, I don't, I can't emphasize enough how big of a change that is. Companies when I would talk to them about goal setting, which I do a lot with them, you would very rarely get them to public commit to something that they didn't have a clear path of how they were going to be successful on because they were worried about getting completely like clobbered if they didn't meet that goal. And this, they have all just like said, oh yeah, we're going to do the global commitment, which by the way, like is not up to them to totally be successful. They could change everything in their system, like in their part that they control and the rest of the world could not change and they would fail. Mm-hmm because they need, you know, so they understand that more than ever. So those big commitments and Coke, actually the world without waste that came out before the global commitment. Mm-hmm. And that was the first goal of its kind. P and G came quickly behind it. McDonald's came behind it. You know, like there's these big goal setting moments. That's leadership. It sets the framework, but then you've got like, who's going to deliver on this. Right. And so you've got a lot of companies that are delivering in different ways. Unilever, um, and then- you know, like Nestle. But they're all wildlife fund. How does it fit into everything? How does, how does, how do, what is, how does what fit into everything? Our mission? Yeah. Or how does the plastics issue? Or just into the plastics issue because it feels like you and the World Wildlife Fund are, le- are becoming leaders in sort of trying to solve the issue and especially when it comes to institutional level, right? Yeah. So I think um, when we, you know, I've been working on plastics with WWF in a really smaller piece with companies mm-hmm. for about eight years. But, you know, as this issue became really um, prevalent, WWF as a global network, so all 90 offices, you know, 90 plus offices said, we have to figure out what our strategy is going to be. Well, what do we want to ultimately happen? And then how can we leverage our power and our institutional knowledge to do that, right? And so we established the strategy last year called No Plastics in Nature. Essentially, we don't want it there. It doesn't belong there. We're not saying it's a bad material. We're saying that we need to rethink the entire system. And we know to do that, you can't just engage one part of that system. So we need to engage cities. We need to engage policymakers. We need to engage the public. And we need to engage companies. And so each of those four pillars are really an important lever to pull to change it, right? So when you think about companies and the plastics issues, I need them to be successful for 
for us to be successful. If we're going to get to a point where we don't have plastics in nature, I need to get companies to help solve that problem with me. And so say, you, say you're the CEO of Starbucks, what would you do if you could do anything tomorrow? Um, I mean, they're, they are a to-go industry, right? And they are, they are not huge. I mean, they have over 9,000 stores, I think. I might be wrong on that. I don't know. Um, and, they, um, and they've got a really powerful brand. Like, they have to step up and take a leadership position on what this looks like. Um, they, you know, they need to be out in front of it. They can't be, you know, they can't be waiting for regulation to push them along. They need to be setting the stage. Um, but they're also a huge ship and that takes time for them to change. Right. So you're a CEO, what would you do? Would you put LED lights in the stores? You know, (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, they're already doing that, right? Like they're, they're, their green building is lead plus, right. They're trying to do lead plus a whole other set of stuff. And so that there's a lot of that that's embedded into what they've been doing, but just nobody really ever talks about it because you don't. Um, but I would say, they need to, they need to figure out like they've got sustainable sourcing of coffee and they need to be addressing all the social issues that come along with that. And they need to make sure that they deal with their cups and all of their plastic. Like those are the things they have to deal with the fact that they have a huge energy footprint. They are, they do have technology for filtering water, but they need to think about um, their basin level impact for all of those stores. Like what does that do for those water basins? So not just their use and quality, but like, how are they impacting the water basins? You know, they need to have a whole an environmental suite and a vision for that. And so he needs to be like Kevin Johnson needs to be setting the stage and saying, here's what you need, like, and, and being the leader in that um, to do that. And so um, and to some extent, I think he's um, I think he's got some of that drive in him. Um, yeah. We'll see what they do. Like, that's the thing. Now, um, I don't know what these companies are going to do because now they're like we've got to like, we've got to be out in front of this. And so you're going to, I don't think we've, we're done seeing big, crazy commitments and big, yeah. crazy ideas. These big commitments is, and the issue is, is whether it's going to be the right commitment as well. Right. Yeah. Making sure that it's like, are we trading off one environmental issue for the other? It's always our biggest fear. For example, the two supermarkets in Australia banned disposable bags at the supermarket, but they bought in slightly thicker reusable bags and charged everyone for them. And so that, I mean, <laughs> the thing with reusable, right. And this is the part that I'm always like, I, I always like harp on is that reusable bags take much more resources to make. Um, and so in order for them to be an environmentally better choice, they need to be used like something like 80 to a hundred times to meet the, the environmental threshold of that 80 to 100 single uses of a plastic bag. Yeah. And the better we get at recovering materials, the more times we actually have to use them. So, you know, I think reusability is, is going to be a piece of this. And so I don't want to dog on the fact that like it, there are there that like, and, and drag it down, but we do need to have a bar for what success looks like. And we need to be transparent about the fact that like this coffee mug has a lot more in it. And if I don't use it, Lots every single day. If I see you in the rest of my life, I hope you're using that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, this one's probably. I mean, I've had this probably for like three years. I use it every day. Like this is what I fill because it keeps my coffee really hot, and I have a coffee addiction. Um, (laughs) But like, (laughs) I don't. You can't waste a drop of that. Um, It's the nectar of the gods. So I think that those are that like with reusable. Yeah, there's a trade-off with that, and so 
we know that there's going to be a trade-off in these decisions. We know that there's going to be a different environmental cost or even an economic cost. And how do you address that? And not just say, obviously, it's better because it's better over here in the waste area. And that is what happened when we designed plastics. They were better in production and use for environmental profile. Like, and we just went gangbusters on them without ever checking ourselves and solving for the area we knew they weren't the best. And we can't mm. do that with the solutions to the problem now. Mm. We have to be, and it's okay to not get it perfect the right time, the first time, right? It's okay. But we just need to be really honest about that. Like we can't, nothing is going to be the golden solution. Not one thing is going to solve this whole problem. Do you think we're and still, so, talk, do you, what do you think the issue will be in 2050? Because it's changed from climate change to this. It used to, you know, when my parents were around, it was nuclear, you know. I know. Gosh, at 20, like that is, that's 30 years from now. And that is the amount of damage that we will have done <laughs> if we haven't fixed a lot of this stuff. Like those dystopian TV shows and futures where it seems pretty apocalyptic, that can be really realistic, right? We this just the changes that like if you look at the number of yeah, I if we have not made like very transformational transformational changes in the next like decade, um, I think we're gonna get to a point where it's pretty irreversible. And that is scary. So I I'm I would love optimistically for us not to be talking about this stuff, for us to be talking about how we are like being more like how our requirements are to be neutral, but to be regenerative, right? Like that should be a discussion that's starting now, right? Like not yeah. how I can make no impact, but how can I actually make a positive impact? Like how do I actually fix stuff versus like causing a mess and just putting band-aids on it? Thank you for listening to Good Business. This is your host, Ryan Everton and from me to you I hope you go and make the world a better place.